This is the EWN Podcast Network. Are you ready to live your life by your rules? Need some inspiration? Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success, the podcast that brings you interviews with people who have had their life path challenged and have redefined what success and a first-class life really means to them with tales of roads taken, detours explored, turning points, and transformation. Here is your host, First Class Life mentor, Kate Fessler. Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today my guest is America's Wealth Mentor, Linda P. Jones. Linda is the author of You're Already a Wealth Heiress, Now Think and Act Like One, Six Practical Steps to Make It a Reality Now. She's also the host of the Be Wealthy and Smart podcast, listened to in 181 countries with over 1.9 million downloads. Linda shares wealth building secrets, tips, and knowledge that made her $2 million by the age of 39. She teaches that financial freedom is about making the right choices and anyone can become wealthy, no matter how much or how little money you're starting with. Linda says your wealth heiress is the smart, confident, successful, wealthy woman already inside of you who has yet to be fully discovered. Welcome, Linda. Hey, Kate, thanks for having me, great to be here. Let's start at the beginning. When you were a kid, what did you wanna be when you grew up? Oh, wow. Well, that's a good question. I was fascinated by wealth, and I just wanted to know how it worked. I don't know if there was anything specific that I wanted to be, but I definitely got the bug about just having no limitations on life and being able to do whatever I wanted in life. I felt like we have one life to live, and I wanted to be free and be able to afford to do whatever I wanted without limitation. So I think maybe I might have wanted to be a motivational speaker. I don't know. But if I had to guess, I'd probably say that. Was that even a thing back then? (laughs) It kind of was. I mean, I think that, well. Oh, there were some like Earl Nightingale and. Yeah. Brian Tracy, they were kind of around back. Earl Nightingale definitely was on my radar screen. Yeah. So you made $2 million by the age of 39, and that was a lot more money and was a lot more unusual than it is now. Was that your goal? It sounds like you were just kind of interested in, in understanding wealth and making wealth, or did that just happen because of the path you were following? Well, it didn't just happen. I definitely pursued it. And I pursued it because I got married and thought that I needed to hire a nanny to help me since I was a career woman and the main breadwinner. So my main motivation was, okay, if I want to try to have a baby and a family, I better figure out a way that I'm going to finance this. And uh, so that was sort of my thought process. And The money came, but the baby didn't, unfortunately. Uh, But I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if if I had that child. So I, you know, in retrospect, I can say probably things do work out for the best. But I definitely was motivated and was trying to build wealth faster because I'd been in the investment industry and had some knowledge base about investing and felt like it was just not working fast enough. I I would probably have a nice retirement egg by the time I was ready to retire, but I didn't want that. I wanted it sooner. So I had to step up my game. 
So tell me about your career on Wall Street. Well, after I graduated from business school at the University of Washington, I got a job with a a local stock brokerage firm and just um, worked my way up the ladder and worked in San Francisco at our regional headquarters, worked in New York at our national headquarters, actually on Wall Street and in the World Trade Center. And was also working in the financial planning department, mutual funds, different areas within the firm, and um, but mostly the um, what they call product, more product type investments, which are packaged products, which were mutual funds at the time. We didn't have ETFs back then. Mm-hmm. So uh, sort of the way to invest was through mutual funds if you were going to invest in the stock market. And, uh, and so... You know, over the years, that was mainly what I did. I did some other things, some management and other roles, but that was mainly the thing is representing the people who managed the money, uh, knowing how they managed the money, what their strategies were, how successful they were, what their track records were, and working with financial advisors to help them decide which money manager to put their client's money with. So I never was a financial advisor. I didn't want to be. I wanted to understand how people manage money and grew money successfully. What made you decide it was time for a change? Well, I started investing in real estate And I was investing after kind of an economic debacle. There were a lot of foreclosures available. And I had a friend who was a realtor who uh, connected me in with an investor group and they were investing in different um, foreclosures. And so we started investing in those and fixing them up and selling them. And we had success. We were making about a 15% return. But it was a lot of work and there were some unpleasant things like cleaning toilets and (laughs) other things that I didn't really enjoy that um, started making me think, well, gosh, the stock market just went up 30% last year. And if I had made that return in stocks, I wouldn't have had to do all this other stuff or manage all these people, these contractors and realtors and pay commissions and all these things. And, um, maybe I could have actually earned a higher return. So I thought, well, you know, I've been investing in mutual funds. Other people have been managing my money, but I represent all these money managers. I kind of am getting a feel for these different styles and what's working. Maybe I could just try managing my own money in individual stocks. And so I bought How to Make Money in Stocks by William J. O'Neill. And with the base of knowledge that I had, I could take that and understand the chart patterns and the things he was talking about. That plus lucking into the technology bubble, the internet bubble at the right time really propelled everything. And those returns were crazy in that time. And so I really understood using a bubble to help me have investment success. Mm -hmm. You became a widow at a fairly young age. That must have been a big detour in your life plan. How did that affect how you thought about your future? Yes, it was a shock one day when my husband collapsed from a brain aneurysm. There was no notice, no headache, no nothing. And he never regained consciousness and then two weeks later passed away. So it was a huge shock. Um, It really changed my life in so many ways. I mean, obviously, completely 
you know, from the perspective of being a married couple and being happy to, you know, being on my own and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I guess what it did was it allowed me to start, sort of go in search of what my life's purpose was. And so that's what I decided to do. I took some college courses. I thought about what I wanted to do. And I ended up deciding that I would go to a seminar. And the seminar was about uh, internet marketing. And so I learned how to market online and then start a business. And I worked with some different coaches and started my online company and then a seminar company and masterminds and all that stuff. And then thought it's a little bit more complicated than what I want. I think I want something more simple, something more uh, to reach a larger audience and something that I can do uh, from home. And that's when I started my podcast uh, a few years ago and then ultimately writing the book. So it all sort of flowed from that. Yeah. Let's talk about the book. It's called You're Already a Wealth Heiress. Now think and act like one. Six Practical Steps to Make It a Reality Now. What do you mean by you're already a wealth heiress? Well, you read the quote about what a wealth heiress is. And I got the idea because I feel like women already have the ability to build wealth and create wealth within them. They just don't always realize it. And I kind of thought about nature and the fact that a small seed grows into a humongous tree. And the way that the ability to have that humongous tree is already naturally within the seed, it's just a law of nature, I felt the same way for women, that women have that as well, and that they can apply that, and if they connect in with it, that they can create wealth for themselves. They just need to follow some steps and, and understand how it all works, but that they can do it for themselves. So what inspired you to write this book? What what made you think people really need this? And then for whom did you write it? Who are you thinking of as the person who would benefit most from this book? I realized that one of the reasons that women don't seem to take an interest in finance, one of the reasons is we're so busy with other things. I mean, women do noticeably, they actually have done studies and found out how many extra hours women work than their spouses do. Uh, so women are already doing more in the home. They're, they're working outside the home. They're doing all these things. And I realized that oftentimes they'll delegate the finances to their partner or their spouse and just say, here, you take care of it because I'm not really interested. I don't really want to deal with this. Uh, and I thought part of that was that there just wasn't enough interest on women's parts it, it, on the part of the woman to be that drawn to finance because some people saw it boring. And I thought maybe I can reinvent finance for women so that women see it as something that's more interesting. And maybe if we use, you know, luxury and we use some uh, fabulous images and we talk about it in a particular way that it won't be so dry and boring. It doesn't have to be all numbers. It doesn't have to be, uh, this really horribly terrible thing. And I'm not a fan of budgets. So that was the first thing I threw out the window were the budgets. <laughs> and, um, 
And so that was really my point was really to just reinvent financial things for women to make it more interesting and draw them in, in a way that women would invent the financial industry if a woman did it. Yeah, that's actually a very good point because the financial industry was invented by men, uh, for men, like many things in our world. And it does seem like they, um, the existing structures try to make it sound a little more complicated than maybe it really is, which I think is one reason why a lot of people don't engage because they either feel like it's boring, like you said, or it's too complicated. Right. And it doesn't make women want to do it. And I was lucky because I had a really good role model in my mom and my mom handled finances in our family. So I really got to see, you know, here's someone raising five children. She had a business on the side because she was running an apartment building that my parents bought. I mean, they had a manager who ran it, but she had to manage the manager. And then uh, just handling that whole thing with five kids and taking care of the household, my dad and everything, you know, he was a Boeing engineer. It was you know, something to watch. And it was a real tremendous, she was a, a tremendous role model. And uh, even later at, at an advanced age, still running a business, you know, dancing, walking a mile a day, you know, she was just an amazing woman. So I, I had the fortunate experience of having her for a mother. And uh, a lot of what I learned and what I am sharing in the book is because of my mom. You are not a fan of most conventional wealth building wisdom. For example, as you just mentioned, in your book, you caution people that budgets, budgets may be hazardous to your wealth and not to be what you call a frugalist. What's wrong with those things? Okay. There's nothing wrong with a budget if you are strapped for cash. If you don't make enough money, to cover your bills or barely make enough money to cover your bills, you probably then need to keep track of every dollar. But if you are a person who has a healthy income or enough income to cover all your bills, and that's not a problem, the reason I think that budgets can be hazardous to your wealth is they can feel like a diet. They can feel very restrictive and people want to go off them as soon as they start them. And it can give you a bad relationship with money because you feel like you're restricted, you can't have what you want, and that kind of thing. So what I talk about instead are spending priorities. And I talk about five spending priorities that you decide are your most important things to spend money on. And that way you're matching up your money with what you really want out of life so that you can have the first class life that you want to design, right? You can design it instead of really just sort of haphazardly having this or that, you can decide what's important to you and where you want to spend your money. And I think a frugal life, I think people get off track on this frugal thing because there's a trend to live in a very meager way. And by that, I mean to live in a hut or a shed, to uh, not own a car, to, uh, you know, not, experience things, to not travel, to not go out with your friends, to, you know, not experience life. And I think frugalists are unfortunately making money so important that they're making life unimportant. And that's not what, in my opinion, life is all about. Life is all about experiencing it and having the life that you want. And I want to help people design the life they want, 
not how to not live life and live it on a small scale. Yeah, that makes sense. The budgeting and the diet analogy. Um, And also it puts you in the mindset of scarcity, right? Like, oh, there's only so much and we have to keep track of every little bit. Whereas what you want to be is in the mindset of abundance where it's flowing, right? That's right. And the, the thing is you're, you're still aware of where you're spending the money. So I'm not talking about just going and blowing it on anything. I'm talking about being very disciplined with what you do because you're putting it out there very specifically. You know, you're saving for a trip or you're paying yourself first, or you're putting it toward your 401k for retirement, or you're putting it for your kid's college education, or you're putting it for that next handbag you want to have or that nice pair of shoes. But you're putting it very diligently out there for specific reasons because that's what brings you pleasure but you're also making sure that you're saving for those future obligations that one day will come because you will retire one day and you want to have an abundant retirement too you don't want to be someone who's only living on social security and can you know barely afford anything so i'm showing you how to live today i i say keep one eye on today and one eye on the future so you're doing both You also disagree that the best way to build wealth is to work for it and earn it. This was a little bit of a surprise because, of course, those of us, you know, of a certain age, that was the advice that we got, right, from our parents was you work hard, you, you know, save, invest, whatever it is. Um, And then from where I sit here in the Pacific Northwest, it seems like the best way to build wealth is to work for a company and get a some stock options that then go through the stratosphere, right? (laughs) But that's not really an option for the large majority of people. Why isn't working and earning it the best way to build wealth? Well, I think people put too much emphasis on working for their money instead of letting their money make money for them. And so I want people to look at the investment component of money so that you can compound at a high rate because it's the compounding that actually builds wealth. And in my book, I give an example of two people that make a modest income, $40,000. One saves 2%, which is the average savings rate of the average American. Uh, And over time, you know, doesn't end up with much money at retirement over 30 years. And the other one who makes the same amount of money saves $5,500 a year in their IRA and invested in the stock market, earns roughly 10% a year and has over a million dollars in their account. So that's my example of it's not how much you earn, it's what you do with what you earn and making the right decisions with your money that are going to build you wealth. And The most important concept behind that is what I call step four and five of the six steps to wealth. Step four is investing in a money engine. Step five is compounding at a high rate. And those are what are actually going to create wealth for you. Having recently had record jackpots in the lottery brings to mind that section of your book where you talk about lottery mindset versus wealth mindset. We know that most lottery winners run out of money which seems ludicrous, especially if you win $1.5 billion. But the same could be true of people who get a windfall through stock options or even an inheritance. Explain why that happens. All right, I just did a podcast about this too. So first of all, the $1.5 billion lotto that someone just won after taxes 
state and federal taxes and taking a lump sum payout, they're going to end up with roughly half a billion dollars, 500 million, which is still a lot of money, but it's not one and a half billion. And so we're, we're now down to half, half a billion. And then uh, I've done podcasts about people who have made half a billion or who actually uh, one woman got a billion dollars in a divorce settlement, but how they ended up broke. And the reason for that is because when people think about getting a lot of money, the first thing they think about is what am I going to spend it on? And so their whole thought process is spending. It's about buying this, buying that, it's spending. And if your whole thought process is about spending, you can actually spend through that large amount of money and pretty darn fast. And usually lottery winners or people that have large inheritances go through the money within five years and they're completely either broke or they've spent the whole thing in five years. And so the problem is, it's like a swimming pool, okay? Let, let's, say, let's, say you, um, let's say you had water and you had um, a bucket of water that came to you every year, okay? That's your, your income. And then all of a sudden you were given a big swimming pool full of water. So you got a lot more water, a lot more income than you usually had, right? A lot more money. And so you started taking buckets of water out of that swimming pool thinking, wow, this is great because it's never going to end. And then one day you get to the bottom of the swimming pool and it's completely empty and dry. And that's because the whole thing was spent. But what if you figured out a way that you could have water coming into your swimming pool that refilled your swimming pool with water? So then when you spent water, you also had water coming in and then you basically had an unending supply of money or water. That's what people have to do when they win the lottery. They have to invest some of it so that the water gets replenished or the money gets replenished. And if they don't do that, then they can actually spend through the whole thing. I can't even imagine. (laughs) What is a money engine? A money engine is something that grows your wealth. It's something that um, makes more. It compounds at at a rate that continues to grow money. And that can be real estate, whether it's your home or investment real estate. It can be stocks and bonds. It can be a small business. It can be any other kind of investment that appreciates in value. It's not something that depreciates in value, though. So it's not a new car, because new cars tend to lose a lot of value in the first few years in particular. So it's like a guaranteed bad investment almost. Uh, And so a money engine is something that is going to increase in value over time. So debt is at an all-time high, which is not a good thing, especially with rising interest rates. What do you suggest people do to get out of debt at the same time balancing their spending priorities? Well, people need to put their debt first and make sure that they're, number one, aware of how much debt they have because they might have multiple credit cards. They might have multiple balances. You want to pay your highest interest rate first and also your highest debt balance first. And a lot of advice out there is to pay your smallest balance first. But the problem with that is if you do that, your credit, which is already dinged because of all of the debt that you have, is not going to get repaired until you pay off 
your largest amount of debt. Your, your, um, if, you, if you have um, a $20,000 credit limit and you have $18,000 charged on it, that is going to ding your credit more than if you have a $20,000 credit limit and you have $1,000 on that card. So when people pay this $1,000 debt, it's not helping their credit improve. But when they pay the $18,000, when they start on that, it's helping their credit improve as well as paying down their most costly debt at the highest interest rate, which is saving you the most money. So that makes more sense. But that's what I recommend people do is put their money toward their highest interest rate debt and their biggest, um, most used debt. Just to play devil's advocate here for a second, our economy is fueled by overconsumption. If everyone followed your advice, paid off their credit card debt, bought what they wanted at discount, by the way, I am a big fan of consignment shopping and all of that that you mentioned in your book. Um, I do have what you call a, quote, celebrity closet, but if it's not 75% off retail or more, I don't buy it. <laughs> but back to my question. Wouldn't the economy tank if everyone stopped spending more than they should and paid off all their debt and all of that? No, the economy wouldn't tank. <laughs> uh, the economy is run by a lot of different things, and uh, a lot of corporations, government spending also helps the economy, although the consumer is 60% of the economy. And so we look at consumer confidence numbers. That's really important to have a, a consumer who's happy and spending money, but it's not necessary to go into a deficit to spend in order for the economy to continue to move forward. We don't have time to go into all the details of the book, so people are just going to have to buy it to get the Millionaire Action Plan and all your other great advice. But they can also listen to your podcast, Be Wealthy and Smart. Tell me about that. Well, Be Wealthy and Smart is a fun thing that I do. I just love sharing ideas with uh, my listeners, it's, you know, it can be things that happen with people I was talking to or things I see in the news or I get ideas from everywhere, but I do it three times a week and they're very short. So they're typically in 15 minute or less sound bites. Some episodes are a little longer, but most of them are pretty short. And I just focus on one thing and then give people information about that. And I was um, recently very thrilled to have uh, my uh, a podcast I did called What to Do if the Stock Market Crashes, uh, which was also an excerpt from my book, get published in Forbes.com. So that was a thrill that I had recently. And um, But the podcast is, is my way of getting the word out to people all over the globe. And as you said, it reaches people in 181 countries, which thrills me to no end to know that. And um, I, I just love having an impact on both men and women in the podcast because I do speak to both men and women there. And it's uh, just, you know, my principles, just how to get what you want out of life, how to have more money, how to accumulate more and get to financial freedom faster. Well, congratulations on the Forbes recognition. I think what to do if a stock market crashes is something that's on a lot of people's minds these days. It is. And, you know, volatility is part of investing. And having that investor mindset is huge and understanding what volatility is all about and the fact that it's not necessarily a bad thing. So uh, we need to get these excesses out of the market. The market's going to go up and pull back. And that's part of the whole investor cycle. So understanding that and not panicking and pulling your money out of the market is going to get people a lot farther ahead because 
um, just in the last 20 years, if they had stayed in the market the whole time, their $10,000 would have grown to $40,000. But if they miss only the 10 best days of the stock market, then they would have had half that return. And if they would have missed the 20 best days, they actually would have lost half their investment. So it's really important that people stay in the market for the long term. I think a lot of people got spooked after 2008 and maybe didn't get back in while the whole thing was growing to its record highs as it is now. So you would say, don't get spooked, just ride it out. That's right. I think we have farther to go. Yes, we're going to have some pullbacks. We might even have some crashes. But those numbers that I gave you about growing it to four times included 2007 in those numbers. And that was one of the worst times we've seen in our lifetimes. So, you know, we've been through those crashes and they're going to happen, but you just have to hang in there. And as you get closer to retirement, that's where you want to address your risk level and maybe take a little, take your foot off the gas a little bit and get a little bit. Uh, less risky as you get closer to retirement. But if you have 15 years or more, you want to keep your foot on the gas and get that compounding rate up there so that you can have a comfortable retirement and compound at the highest rate possible and get your money working for you so you don't have to work so hard. Speaking of uh, age groups, close to retirement or not, um, there's advice for just about everybody in your book, isn't there? There is. I talked to baby boomers. I talk to millennials. I talk to Gen Z. I talk to people who think that they are too late getting started, that, they're, that they, there's no hope for them. Uh, I really show every different group what they need to focus on, what their advantages and disadvantages are of their generation, and how to use that to their advantage. And if your podcast is listened to in 181 countries, then your advice must be universal and not just focused on uh, people here in the United States. It is. I mean, the investments that I talk about are a little bit more U.S. focused, but really they can take the principles and they can adapt them to their country as well. And they can definitely use them anywhere because a lot of what I talk about are general wealth building principles. And once you kind of get that in your head, that's what's going to propel you forward. I mean, I think one of the major things that really changed my life was when I realized that I wasn't compounding at a high enough rate. And because I had developed the six steps to wealth, which are the way I explain that people go from zero to wealth, uh, once I understood those steps and once I understood that, uh-oh, I'm not really compounding at a rate that's going to get me to wealth, that's what really propelled me on the path to start taking a different uh, you know, taking the investing uh, more, um, just, you know, starting that myself and taking that under my wing rather than having someone else do it. And that's what made all the difference for me to make my first two million. But, you know, I was always fascinated by why are some people rich and other people aren't. And it was actually because I'm from the Seattle area where you are, and we would take a boat and we would drive around Mercer Island where I lived and look at all these huge houses on the water and say, how do people get that kind of money to afford a house like that? And sometimes we could point to a house and say, well, we know that one because they started a department store or we know that one because they own the Sonics. But the other people in between, we didn't really know. And it was like, how did they do that? And that's, the, that's sort of the question 
that I had my whole life and what got me to really study a lot of millionaires and come up with the six steps to wealth. Ah, the Sonics. They keep talking about bringing them back. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) So we're at that point in the program where I have to ask you, what is one book or resource that changed your life besides your own that you would recommend to people? Well, when I was about 10 years old, my father gave me a copy of Think and Grow Rich. And he had read it and he handed it off to me. I think he was thinking it would be a very positive book for me. That was kind of, I think, some of the, um, as you were saying, Earl Nightingale and some of those people that were actually quoted in the book. Uh, I think that's what really got me started on the wealth mindset and understanding how our thoughts impact our wealth building. I think a lot of financial experts today sort of miss that piece. Um, There's people who want to talk about the secret and make it very mystical. And then there's people who want to talk about the very practical steps of wealth building. And I combined the two, uh, starting with creating a wealthy mindset because of that book. And I think that there is definitely something about having certainty. Uh, I call it certainty, not really the secret, but I call it certainty. And once you lock into the certainty of having what you want to have, that you can create that for yourself. Linda, how do you personally define success. What does your authentic first-class life look like? I define success as doing what you want to do, living the life you want to live, which includes your life purpose, because I really do think that we're all here for a reason. And for me, I think just being able to do what I love every day, share my knowledge, helps me live my purpose That gives me great pleasure to do my podcast, to write, to um, do videos or share ideas with people, uh, have a business, create products, anything creative. That whole creative process to me is when I'm in the flow, when I'm happiest. But I also love to travel. Uh, You and I got to go on a luxury yacht and experience that. Um, there are some, you know, fabulous trips to take around the world and, and this world is an amazing place to see and just enjoying that, um, living in the desert, um, moved out of the Seattle climate, which I love (laughs) Seattle, but not so much in the winter. Mm. Um, so living in the desert and being able to, um, enjoy some nice sunshine and, um, that's, you know. To me, it's just being able to spend your time how you want to spend your time and have that freedom to do what you want to do. And that's uh, how I live. That's what I consider my first class life. Mm, Very nice. If people want to buy your book, presumably at a discount, I know they can find it on Amazon. Is it in bookstores and libraries as well? It is. It's carried uh, Barnes & Noble and all bookstores because it's distributed by Simon & Schuster. So they should be able to find it there. It looks like that. So you can see the uh, cover. And yeah, Amazon's probably the easiest way. If we do have people that are international listeners, um, there is the Amazon in the UK is carrying it as well. So we do have an international connection for people to connect in with it too. And of course, there's always the Kindle. And there's always a Kindle. That's right. And your podcast is on iTunes and presumably other places like Stitcher, et cetera, as well? 
That's right. Anywhere you can find podcasts. And it's also my website at lindapjones.com because uh, iTunes only handles the most current 300 episodes and I'm up to episode 475. So you can get the first 175 episodes on my website at lindapjones.com forward slash podcasts, plural. Perfect. So if people want to find out more about you and your work, presumably they can go to lindapjones.com and find out all about it. That's right. That's right. What is next for Linda P. Jones? Wow. Uh, Well, I have some surprises coming up, but uh, probably a second book is in the works. I really would like to expand on some concepts that I talked about in in the Wealth Heiress book. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see another book come out. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. This book is You're Already a Wealth Heiress. Now think and act like one. Six practical tips to make it a reality now. Linda P. Jones, America's Wealth Mentor and maybe the world's Wealth Mentor. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom with me today. My pleasure. Thank you, Kate. First Class Life, Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler. We'll be right back. Back to the show. First Class Life, Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler. You may have heard Linda mention when she and I got to go on a yacht together. We actually were on two episodes of Below Deck Mediterranean on the Bravo TV network. I guess it's two years ago now? Linda and Kathy from our original group and another friend, Jamie, were just recently on Below Deck from Tahiti. So check it out if you have a chance. That show is crazy. If you want to have experiences like that, or even if you just want to feel secure about your retirement, you'll want to check out Linda's advice in her book, You're Already a Wealth Heiress, Now Think and Act Like One, and also her Be Wealthy and Smart podcast. You can find information about all of that at wealthheiress.com. I hope you'll join me next week when my guest will be the caregiver's caregiver, Dave Nassani. Until then, cheers to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to First Class Life, Redefining Success. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of First Class Life, Redefining Success with Kate Fessler. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit FirstClassLifeSolutions.com on Twitter at Kate Fessler and on Facebook at First Class Life Solutions. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN podcast hosts at EWNpodcastnetwork.com. 